your career. Who are you going to be? I mean, it's all you're all kind of in preparation. And with that comes an enormous amount of stress and anxiety. And so I thought it might be helpful um, if I could just spend some time talking to you from the Bible about what the Bible has to say. Typically, anxiety can be termed as a psychological problem and psychology has done some good work. But, you know, amazingly, the Bible has some things to say about that. So maybe if we could look at Philippians chapter four for just a little bit this morning. I'm going to try to be really practical. And as we go through this passage, if you have some note paper, I think you'll want to use it. Um, and it's kind of a system that develops out of the out of the passage. Now, Christianity is not a system. It's a relationship. But there are some steps that we can take as I think they're defined in this passage. And we'll be looking at verses four down to verse nine. Um, and as we go, you might just jot a key word. That's all you'd really have to jot because it'll all make sense to you, I think, when we're done. Kenneth Peltier, in an article entitled Mind as Healer, Mind as Slayer, reports the fact that medical and psychological problems, medical and psychological problems caused by stress have become the number one health problem in America in the last 10 years. The number one health problem. One standard medical text estimates that 50 to 80 percent of all diseases have their origin in stress. 50 to 80 percent of all diseases have their origin in stress. In describing how stress can have such a powerful impact on the individual, this guy Peltier explains, stress can affect the person's brainwave activity, endocrine and immunological balance, blood supply and pressure, respiration rate and pattern and digestive processes. That means when you get under a lot of stress, you get the runs. You understand what I'm saying? You ever had that problem? And it really gets stressful and your whole stomach just goes to pot on you. So stress, a very real problem. I mean, if we're going to be practical, let's be practical. Let's, let's look at the passage this morning. Now that I've lost you. Verse 4, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Verse 5, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Verse 6, be anxious for absolutely nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Lastly, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. The passage is all about peace and the passage is all in sharp contrast to anxiety. Be anxious for nothing. Let's give anxiety a definition. Let's call it a, a, a brooding fear or an uneasiness of mind. And here's the key part about some future contingency. A brooding fear over some future contingency. There's something out there. It's a contingency. You're not sure which way it's going to go. And you develop within yourself a brooding fear about which way it's going to go. Uh, maybe some of us are having a brooding fear uh, about who we're going to end up marrying. Very legitimate contingency in your life. There's nothing you can do about it. The question is, how are we going to respond to that? So let's call that anxiety. The first thing that Paul says is to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 
The word rejoice is a verb. It's a present active imperative verb. An imperative verb, therefore, is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's not a good thought. It's not something that someone offers you on occasion as something that might help. It is a command from God. God commands us to rejoice always. Yeah, nice thought, right? The other day I had to do a funeral of a young couple. Uh, they had been trying to have, for a young couple, uh, they had been trying to have a baby for the last, I don't know how many, three, four years. They're good friends of ours. We went to USC together. And out of that group has come numbers of couples. And there's probably three or four or five of us in our circle of friends, all these couples. And all of us have kids. I have three, unfortunately. No, <laughs> I have three kids. I got more kids than I know what to do with. I got so many kids. And the rest of us have a lot of kids, except this one couple. And they've been trying for a long time to have kids. And they've had three miscarriages. And this last one, the fourth attempt, and now, now you see in the process here, they've gotten all kinds of medical help. And they're, they're being worked with and they're trying to figure this thing out. And they're a godly couple and yet they just can't seem to have kids. And you know what that could do to you. It makes you question who you are. Are you worthy? Is there sin in your life? What's God doing? And why can't we just have some kids? They'd make great parents. And so they finally get this fourth pregnancy underway and they're under constant medical examination and treatment and the medical stuff is just going crazy and they come to, I forget how developed, um, about, let me think, three or four months and suddenly the little, uh, the little sack there protrudes out of the womb. And so they have to put her on her back and they hope that they can keep it and they can't. And it eventually works out that she has got to deliver a baby that they know will not live. And I get a phone call. And so we, we find out the way it eventually works out is that she delivers this little Matthew. They called him Matthew. And his father held this baby for an hour as its life slipped into the presence of Jesus Christ. Now the Bible says to rejoice in the Lord always. The question is how? Is that a fair command of the Lord Jesus Christ at that point? I think it is. I think we need to define the word rejoice not as a giddy, happy, mindless bliss but rather as a deep inner blessedness, a pleasant assurance, a profound, unaffected, unashamed inner attitude of constant rejoicing. To rejoice is not always to be happy, as we think of it so often in our culture. To rejoice is to have within our heart a deep-seated blessedness that comes from our relationship with the living God. Don't turn there because it'd take us all too long to find it. But let me read to you a little passage out of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet, this is out of Habakkuk 3, who was called by the Lord to minister to the, the, the nation of Judah just prior to her destruction and fall under the hands of the Babylonians. And, and he came along after a great number of prophets had preceded them. And his message was to call the people to repentance that the hand of God and the disciplining rod of the Lord might be turned and they might survive. And he says in verse 16, I heard and my inward parts trembled. 
At the sound, my lips quivered, decay entered my bones, and in my place I trembled, because I must await quietly for the day of distress. The very fact that he heard the words shook him to his very foundation, that he was going to be destroyed, that the, that the, that the nation of Judah was going to be destroyed. He says this in describing the destruction. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should not fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet, yet I will exalt in the Lord, the God of my salvation. You understand, this man has been called as a prophet. His career then is to be a prophet. And if he's going to be successful in his career, he's going to make prophecy to the people and they're going to turn from their sin, at least from a human perspective. He would consider that profitable and successful. He's called as a prophet and he fails. The people do not turn. Destruction does come. Think of your own vocation, what you'd like to become. Your whole life is dedicated to one particular thing and you give yourself to that. And, at the, at, and when the proper time comes, it's revealed to you that you have had no effect. No effect on your community, on your people, and you're a failure. Now, of course, from God's perspective, he did what he was supposed to do. And from God's perspective, he was successful. But he's just a man. And then he understands the consequence of his failure is utter ruin of the agrarian community in which he lived. It was all flocks. It was all herds. There were no factories. This is his entire society now ruined and destroyed. The comparable for us, no factories, no cars, no streets, no homes, no supermarkets. Everything we know as our society is obliterated. And in the moment of anticipation of that event, he says, yet I will greatly, the word exalt, greatly rejoice. Now, either he's got a screw loose or he's got something we might not have. I suggest that his own words tell us what that is. I will exalt in the Lord. You see, as Christians, we're going to make a decision. We are either going to exalt and find our point of rejoicing in our circumstances like the world does, or we're going to rejoice in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And the circumstances, if you will, can go to hell. The issue is I'm in an active relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, and that is the source of my joy. Take all the rest out. Horatio Spafford, the one who wrote, It is well with my soul, sent his kids after the great fire across the ocean to Europe that they might be relieved from the horrible circumstances that he had experienced because the whole city had burned. His kids, his, I think two or three daughters and his wife, Puts them on the ship and they get out there and the ship sinks. And he gets word finally back from his wife, saved alone. And his daughters drowned in the ocean. And he gets on the boat to go over to greet his wife. And as he gets on the boat, he asks the little steward to call him when they are at the approximate point of the shipwreck. And the man calls him, and he on the deck at that point writes the words to, It is well with my soul. There is a basis of true rejoicing that we potentially forfeit. Because we make ourselves find the basis of our bliss, the basis of our happiness in our circumstances. And there is no guarantee that our circumstances will continue to bear that out.
Some of you are experiencing that. College has been wonderful. And because the pressure maybe has not been there as it is today and will continue to be for the next two weeks, things have been great. And suddenly you're tight inside and suddenly you're irritable and suddenly you're upset and suddenly things aren't the way they ought to be. And it should be a clue to you, at least in part, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I'm going to have my joy and my inner blessedness based upon the relationship of fellowship and purity, being right with God. And if I don't get the grade I'm supposed to get, and if I don't manage to make up for that mistake, or whatever I have done wrong, still I will rejoice in the Lord. Step one to experiencing the peace of God. Let's go back to Philippians 4. The next thing it says there is to let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Now, the word forbearing is not one which finds its way into our daily usage, right? Oh, you have a wonderfully forbearing spirit today, John. You know, no. What does the word mean? The word forbearing spirit means to have a spirit which is not constantly on edge, not constantly on edge, trying to defend its own rights. In a sentence or a phrase, it does not seek its own rights. You ever notice that sometimes it's revealed to me in my own car as I'm driving along and I'm, I'm thinking I have a forbearing spirit, but quickly I realize I don't when somebody cuts me off and I absolutely blast them with my horn. You know what I'm trying to say? Not for the purpose of safety now, but because they have violated my space. And I just, and if I could, you know, you'd punch the guy. That's that kind of an attitude. You step across, it's the John Wayne attitude. Yeah? Look at me wrong, I'll kill you. The macho image. I got rights. You try to take them away, I'll take you away. That's the opposite of a forbearing spirit. Hard, hard word here, the forbearing spirit in this passage. Again, forbearing, a verb, again, an imperatival verb, a command. Again, it has an absolute qualifier to it. Let Rejoice in the Lord always. That means there's never a time you're not supposed to rejoice. Commanded, always to rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. There is never a person in your life to whom you should not be willing to forego your rights by command of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's tough medicine, folks. That means the jerk that's been bugging you ever since you got to this campus because of his personality problem or because of whatever it is that grates you the wrong way. God commands us, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Remember the passage there in Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas have received the Macedonian vision and they're called to Europe to share the faith? And they get there to Philippi and that demon possessed slave girl begins to taunt them. You're from the living God. And it finally bothers him so much. He turns around, he casts the demon out of her. And the owners of her at that point realize that her powers of divination would now be gone and their prophet therefore would go with it. And so they take Paul and Silas and in verse 22, it says they beat them with rods. The rods would have been something, uh, the best of our understanding, with like my fingers as you would put them out there, little prongs, not one big rod, but several of them bound together just loose enough to do some real damage. And they would begin to beat the back. And there's every indication that the back would have been filleted from that beating. Would have been opened, wounded, not just bruised, but opened up so that it was bleeding. 
It says also there in 24 that they, they were thrown into the inner prison. We don't know exactly which prison, but there's every indication to believe that the inner prison was a very dark, musty, solitary place. And once in there, his feet, it says, were put in stocks. Now, the issue behind stocks is not that you're in a public place and you have to be embarrassed by standing there like that. The issue behind stocks and they put them on your feet and what they would do. Have you ever ridden in a car for a long time? Couldn't move your joints. They become very painful. And that's what a stock was used to do, to hold your legs in the same position so you couldn't move your legs. And they'd open them wider and wider and wider. And so there's excruciating pain in an inner dark prison and your back has been filleted. Now, again, only for the purpose of appreciating the quality and the character of this man and the truth we're trying to illustrate. Please understand there were no toilet facilities in the prison. And the men are literally sitting in their own excrement, which would have drawn all the maggots and the flies and the things that that always draws. And they would have then proceeded from that to their back. A horrible circumstance. But what does the Bible say? Verse 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises. Man, I'm telling you, that's what I call rejoicing apart from your circumstances. That's what I call rejoicing in the Lord. These guys actually did that. This is true, not a movie. Interesting, though, as we would try to point out the point of a forbearing spirit. Excuse me. Verse 35 says that you recall what happened. The earthquake, localized earthquake, freed them from their bonds. And Paul was the one who instructed everyone to stay where they were. And the Philippian jailer had absolutely no clue what made these guys tick. Because here they've been beaten and all that stuff. And then they were singing praises. And then there's an earthquake. And then they get everybody under control and don't let anybody leave. Because if they had, the jailer would have died instantly by Roman law. And the, and the jailer comes and says, what do I do to get saved? And he got saved and his whole family got saved. And now this incident has come and gone. And in verse 35, the tail end of the whole thing. Now, when the day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, release those men. I mean, when you got an earthquake in your city, because there's a couple of guys there, you typically want to get them out of your city. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out and go in peace. But... Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away in secret? No, indeed. Let them come themselves to bring us out. Interesting. Paul was a Roman citizen. Philippi was a Roman province. They had absolutely no right to beat him and throw him in jail that way without a proper trial. Yet his forbearing spirit allowed that to happen. He did not demand his rights. God ran his course. And then again, for the purpose of God, he said, no, now I do demand my rights. You come down here, talk to me about this personally. A forbearing spirit is not one which lays itself down. Walk over me. Ah, turn the other cheek. Pacifism. No. A forbearing spirit is one which is constantly ready to give up its rights in the advancement of the kingdom of God. And at the same time, ready to enforce those rights, if that will advance the kingdom of God. There's balance in that. The issue is not me. The issue is God and God's kingdom. That is a forbearing spirit. You run into that all the time. 
collegian, in the dorms, in your studies. People are trying to take your rights and there is a time to let them go. And then there is a time to stand up. And it will be between you and the Lord as you're sensitive to the leading of His Spirit as to when you will and when you will not do that. First two steps to experiencing the peace of God in your life. Number one, rejoice in the Lord always. Make the basis of your joy the relationship that you have with your Lord. Secondly, walk through life ready to give up your rights if that will advance His kingdom. And be ready to stand up and take it on the chin for your own rights if in fact that's what will advance His kingdom. Back to Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Stop right there. Guess what the verb anxious is? Uh, Imperatival verb. It's another command from the Lord himself. And it says there to be anxious for nothing. Another absolute qualifier on the back side. That means there's nothing in your life, absolutely nothing in your life, constituting a future contingency over which you have the right to have a brooding fear. Nothing. That should have impact on us. You guys are wondering about your career and how, where you're going to find yourself in life. It's not an item over which you should have a brooding fear. You gals worried about tomorrow. For a number of different reasons. Don't be anxious. Don't have a brooding fear. Well, that's well and fine, Russ. What instead? You know how that is. The emotions get flaring, don't they? You're just all in a tizzy. That's why it affects the body. Because you get so hot inside. And the emotions and the turmoil and the stress. Okay, great. Tell me not to be anxious. Anything else? What do I do? Just say don't? Yeah, that's the first step. You make a mental decision not to be anxious about that future contingency. But in verse 6 it says, but. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Four words there that all sound like the same thing to me. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and requests. I mean, why did he put so many things in there? Why did he just say pray? Well, if you'll write down the key definition on each one, it might make sense. The word prayer just means to communicate. So he says, communicate. The word supplication describes humble dependence. Someone who supplicates by the nature of supplication admits his inability to meet his own needs, is humbled by that, and cries out. So number one, communicate. That's to pray. Supplicate, the attitude, humble dependence. The third thing it says there is with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? I would suggest thanksgiving for the outcome of the future contingency. I mean, if that's what's causing my anxiety, and I know the God who is sovereign and who knows tomorrow before yesterday, I should stop and thank Him for the outcome of tomorrow's eventuality. Even though I don't know what it is. God, thank you for the career you'll give me. Even though I have no clue what it is. But I trust you. And I know that you're sovereign. And I know as I walk in your way, you'll direct and lead me. Thank you, God, for the future outcome of that contingency. 
And then lastly, it says requests. Requests means specific, specific petition. And this is where you really get your heart open before the Lord. You feel that anxious moment, right? It's there. You remember the passage and you say, anxious for nothing, but, okay, what? I got to communicate with God in an attitude of humble dependence, thanking him in advance for what he'll do in my life in specific relationship to what's bugging me, but then say, oh, but God. And here come the specific requests. Make him six too, gorgeous, godly, and wealthy. You know, God wants to hear that. God wants to know the specific things that you want. God is not a vague God. God is a specific, particular, interested, intimate God. And after you've made the decision not to be anxious, but rather to communicate in a humble cry before the Lord, thanking Him for what He'll do in the future, now tell Him what you want right now with relationship to that problem. Be honest, be vulnerable. God, I don't have a brain. There's no way I'm going to make it past this exam. I need help. I did not study for the last three weeks, a little bit at a time, like they told me I had to do to get past this course when I first started this course. I missed three of the most important classes. My notes are a shambles. God, give me the direction to pull it out. And then you think, who's the smartest kid in the class? Help so-and-so to be available to my need. And when I go ask them for help, teach them, Lord, the forbearing spirit. So that they'll just let me mimeograph all of their notes. And then spend laborious hours with me, drilling me, getting me ready. And then God, when I get in there, help me to remember every last little bit. And then as that prof would finally review my test, seeing my name, a golden person in his life, help him, Lord, to give me extra grace. Now, I'm serious. That's what the passage is calling for. When you feel the anxious moment, it's incumbent upon you to say, no, I have been commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ not to have a brooding fear over the future contingency. And if Jesus commanded me to do it, that means I can. Because Jesus never commands me to do something I cannot do. And instead, he has told me to open the lines of communication in humble dependence, thanking him for tomorrow's solution and today letting him know the real hurts and the real pains and the specific needs that I have to have to get through the rest of this day. You can take that to the bank. That'll get you through. You do that and the consequences in verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will overwhelm you. The word guard there is an interesting word. It was used of Roman soldiers or soldiers in a city who would not guard those who would attack the city. They would not be concerned with who they let into the city. It was this particular guard's function to watch what went out of the city. Now, I don't want to get too carried away with this, but when your anxiety overcomes a person and mental capacities begin to what? Fall apart. They lose their mental capacities. 
And it might just be that the passage is indicating you exercise this as a discipline of your life in the anxious moments. And the peace of God will keep in what is to be in. Will hold your mental faculties together. So that you can think. You can make decisions. You can function. So the anxious moment. The decision is made to rejoice in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Not your circumstances. And remembering how drastic those were for Habakkuk. Putting your problems in small comparison. Secondly, deciding to let your forbearing spirit be known. And typically in the anxious moment, whenever there's a future contingency, typically now, there's another person in there somewhere that could potentially mess you up. Let your forbearing spirit be known. Make the mental decision be anxious for nothing. Open the lines of communication. Humble dependence. Thanking for the future outcome. And then let him have it with your specific needs. The consequence, the peace of God. Now, having gone through that, I can testify to you that it works. And I wish I would do it more. I mean, I'm not here to say I've got the last word on peace. But I would like to testify to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. And I have been under some pretty anxious moments. And when I apply the truth of the scripture, there is a very real sense in which my anxiety level drops. But then I make the mistake. I mean, so quickly, as within a matter of moments, I can be just beaten over the head over this thing, work through this passage, and in five minutes later, being right with God, I can feel peaceful in my heart. But then I make the problem and the, uh, the mistake of letting my imagination bring it all back. Right? You know, it's fun sometimes to chew on those juicy morsels of problems in your life. A guy by the name of Alex Osborne in a book, Applied Imagination, says this. Worry is a non-creative form of imagination. A non-creative form of imagination. All too normal and all too often accepted as uncontrollable. Worrying is like running reels of morbid movies through your mind. But he says we can change those rules. We can substitute for destructive and fearful imaginings, positive and constructive pictures of life, its meaning and its possibilities. Look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, excellence of anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on those things. The word let dwell, another imperatival verb. This passage is just punctuated with imperatival verbs and commands. And what I believe the Lord is saying to us at this point is having worked through the passage as you have and experiencing the peace of God, it is now your next job to control your thoughts and your imagination only to think about what is positive and productive and honorable about that future contingency so that you don't stir up the same problem you just solved. I've never understood why this thing is here. People want to use it for, you know, student policy in all colleges, you know. And they want to just pull this thing out. I'm sure it could be used to talk about my thought life. But I think it finds itself in a passage all about the peace of God. All about anxiety. It is our responsibility, Christian, under the anxious moment to work through the passage and then control the mind as to what it will and what it will not think about. Imagination is not uncontrollable. Imagination is not sinful. It is a gift of God. And it should be employed and used carefully under the instructions of this verse. 
And then you begin then you move almost into the problem solving mode at this point of that future contingency. You begin to think about what's right about that thing, and all of a sudden all kinds of great ideas come up and you think, hey, I may make it after all. Lastly. The things you have learned, verse 9, and received and heard and seen in me, practice. Practice these things, and the God of peace, again, peace, the God of peace shall be with you. The word practice is a participle. It means to make that the continual pattern of your life. Make what the continual pattern of my life? Well, the things that Paul, from whom they had received, heard, and seen him do. What does that mean? Basically, obey. Paul was their Bible, basically. I mean, everything we got, they got from him. All the revelation of God, they got from him. And what the last part of experiencing the peace of God on a regular basis involves is a consistent, regular pattern of obedience in your life. No peace in your life without regular obedience. You skip all this other stuff up top. You want to live in sin, you forfeit the peace of God. Because the Holy Spirit's going to be making you feel unpeaceful until you get obedient. And so then with respect to the specific problem of an exam you're not sure how to do, and you've got your specific request to God, it's your job then to go off and be obedient to those things. Find that person who can help you. Copy those notes. Memorize them. Give your teacher a nice letter before the exam. I mean, all those things will be within the realm of your responsibility. Obey and the peace of God. Let's pray. Father, we would be encouraged this morning by the testimony of great men in the Bible. We think of Habakkuk and how he found his great rejoicing in you. Help us, Lord, to be that way. We think, Father, of Paul and his forbearing spirit. God, today, as we walk out the door... Give us the marvelous grace to exude that spirit to those we would meet and to whom those to whom we would have to give up our rights and who would want to take our rights. For the muster and the strength, God, to say no to anxiety, but to communicate humbly, thanking you, requesting. Father, for the mental power to think then only on things which are true and honorable. And for the integrity, Father, to walk in obedience. We need to be people of peace. We need to be people who experience the joy of our salvation. So much is ours. And what great forfeit we would make were we to wallow in our anxiety. Thank you for the student body. Thank you for their love for each other. Thank you for their great commitment to you, for the great and mighty things you have used them already to do this year. Thank you for our future. And Father, we would thank you for our president. Pray that you would be with him this day. Refresh his heart, strengthen the man, and bring him back to us. In the name of your blessed son, amen.